0: Hello, and welcome to this edition of Constitutionally Sound, a podcast brought to you by the Centre on Constitutional Change at the University of Edinburgh. I'm Nicola McEwan, a Professor of Territorial Politics and Fellow of the Centre, and for the next half hour or so, we'll be discussing constitutional developments in Wales. Perhaps the most culturally distinctive nation within the UK, Wales is sometimes neglected in discussions about the UK's constitutional future. In the referendum that led to its introduction, there was less than a 1% margin in favour of devolution. And when it was introduced, devolution assumed a much weaker form in Wales than in Scotland or in Northern Ireland. But after multiple commissions, another referendum, and three revisions to the devolution settlement, most recently in 2017, Devolution is now firmly embedded in Wales. The Welsh Parliament, or Senedd Cymru, enjoys significant lawmaking powers. And yet Wales seems restless. Around one in five support independence, much lower than in Scotland, but much higher than used to be the case in Wales. The Welsh government has frequently voiced concerns that devolution is being undermined, in part as a result of the Brexit process. And following its re-election in 2021, the Labour government has launched a national civic conversation on the constitutional future of Wales. To discuss these issues, it's a pleasure to be joined by Professor Laura McAllister, Professor of Public Policy and the Governance of Wales at the Wales Governance Centre in the School of Law and Politics at Cardiff University. She's also a former Welsh international footballer and captain of the Welsh team and continues to champion the women's game at home and internationally. As a scholar, Laura has extensively researched Welsh politics and elections, devolution, electoral reform and gender in politics, and works closely with the Senate on constitutional and political matters, most recently as chair of the expert panel on assembly and electoral reform. She's also worked with Welsh government on various projects and was recently appointed as co-chair of the Independent Commission on the constitutional future of Wales, tasked with leading that national civic conversation.
1: Laura, lovely to have you with us. Thank you, Nicola. Pleasure to be here. We'll talk
0: about your work with the Commission later on, uh, but can we reflect back on the development of devolution in Wales? I mean, Since that wafer-thin majority in 1997 uh, that I mentioned, Wales seems to have grown a lot more
1: comfortable with devolution. What do you put that down to? I think that's certainly the case. If you if you look back at the 20 plus years since we've had an Assembly and now a Parliament or a Senedd, I think the mood amongst the electorate and the people of Wales has shifted quite significantly, probably more radically and more substantially than anywhere else in the United Kingdom. And of course, there's an obvious reason for that in that the wafer-thin majority back in 1997 um, suggested a very divided population in terms of support for devolution. But I think once the assembly was up and running from 1999 onwards, it very gradually accrued more support and legitimacy. Certainly, initially, that was a very gradual process, almost a kind of painstaking process of legitimising itself, which occupied the assembly far more than it should have. But then I think if you fast forward to the period, probably from 2007 onwards, I think that was probably the breakthrough in terms of a popular support for devolution and a real recognition that without the Senate being there, uh, Wales was left pretty poorly protected um, in terms of how political tides moved in the rest of the United Kingdom. I guess, you know, you you, you say, why why is that the case? Uh, There are probably a few reasons for that, but one of them is party political for sure. The Welsh Labour Party has a kind of unrivaled electoral record in Wales. It's um, 100 years this November, since Labour last lost a national election in Wales. That's quite some record, you know, that doesn't probably doesn't exist anywhere else in, in the world at state or sub-state level, certainly. And I think the reason that that's significant is that Welsh Labour is fundamentally different to Scottish Labour. I think, you know, most of your listeners probably appreciate that. But Welsh Labour moved some time ago onto the lawns of Plaid Cymru, the the party that campaigns for independence in Wales. And it's made that terrain quite blurred and quite crowded. But but in terms of your question about comfort with devolution, I think the party that the people of Wales have trusted most for a century, aligning itself so strongly with the raison d'etre of devolution and bringing power closer to people has certainly helped with in it in the public consciousness and, and with boosting its legitimacy.
0: I mean, has, has the the party, the Labour Party itself, become more united around these issues? Because I recall from around the time of what was the second devolution referendum, the 1997 referendum, there seemed to be some internal divisions between Labour MPs or some Labour MPs and those who were more committed to seeing out their career uh, within the devolved institutions. Has that changed also in the interim?
1: It's certainly changed, but what's changed more is the balance of power within the party itself. And and I have to say, I think that will change again. There'll be an acceleration that favours the members of the Senedd uh, versus the MPs once the number of MPs that are sent from Wales to Westminster is reduced again. But we're looking at losing at least eight and probably nine of the 40 MPs from Wales at Westminster. So I think context is really important, but so is the uh, legitimacy of the Senedd now. I think it's quite important to note there are still Welsh MPs who are, if not Devo-sceptic, then Devo-resistant in terms of additional powers coming to Wales. There are also Welsh MPs who are hugely suspicious of the relationship between Welsh Labour and Plaid Cymru in the Senedd, because as you know, the two parties have signed a cooperation agreement for the next uh, three years, which will tie them into supporting a whole tranche of quite radical centre-left policies. But I think the most important thing is that Welsh Senedd members have far more authority now within the Welsh Labour Party than do MPs.
0: And that's really interesting. And also remember the devolution itself has has changed, of course, quite a bit too, when the then Secretary of State for Wales, Ron Davies, talked about devolution as a process, not an event. I mean, that's something that can be applied to all of the systems of devolution across the UK, but perhaps more so in Wales than anywhere else. And the most recent reform, 2017, shifted the model of devolution in Wales away from conferred powers to reserve powers. So perhaps looking a little bit more like the models of of devolution in Scotland and Northern Ireland as well. Is that the case? Would you say that that change of model has made a significant difference?
1: I would, but I think it's difficult to attribute too much um, consequence from a, a legislative model change, because clearly most people would not be terribly exercised by a constitutional change such as that. But in real terms, and in terms of Political confidence for the government and also for the parliament to scrutinise. I think it's been really significant. Where the public's involvement comes in, I think, is in terms of of clarity over the competences that the Senedd has and that the Welsh government has to exercise in terms of policy making. Because those of us who have observed Welsh devolution and studied Welsh devolution since. Well, well before 1999, but you know, accelerated since the advent of the National Assembly would tell you that there were so many jagged edges that it was almost impossible not to, you know, cut your finger as you looked at them. So clearly, a reserve powers model is cleaner. It gives a greater perception of shared governance with central government at, in London. The powers are much more clearly defined and there needs to be a case, obviously, for those powers which are accepted from that model. And and as well, bringing the Welsh model in line, not, not entirely, of course, because there are different sets of powers, but in line broadly with the Scottish model is significant, I think, both for perception and confidence and belief about the right that the Welsh people have to have decisions that are relevant to them made in Wales and for Wales. So I think it's it's the nuanced areas around the switch to a reserve powers model that are probably more significant than the actual constitutional change. But, you know, as as you know, Nicola, there's still some very significant areas that are not devolved in Wales, which certainly people who study this more forensically would say make very little sense in terms of the integrity of policy. And I think justice is probably the, the overwhelming one in that context. But also, you know, the, the the idea of a distinct Welsh jurisdiction, areas like policing and so on, are really significant in that they're not devolved because there is a direct impact on policy integrity in related areas. So, you know, around offending and uh, the management of prisons, around probation but also around unemployment and training and how you effectively manage some important policy areas without having control or a or distinct judicial system to manage the others. So I think you know there's still some unfinished business, let's say, even with the devolution, the reserve devolution model that we have.
0: Yeah, I mean, there has been quite a bit of work on those sorts of areas, earlier commissions, for example, looking at justice powers, A Welsh jurisdiction. I mean, what do you think are the barriers for that not happening so far? Are they internal to Wales or is it a barrier at the Westminster level at the UK Parliament or the UK government?
1: I think it's overwhelmingly at at Whitehall and Westminster level, because if you look at the Lord Thomas Commission report on the devolution of justice, I think you'd struggle to find a more compelling and articulate case for why devolving justice powers is important more widely because it's very easy to get academic about this, isn't it, and to talk about the legitimate democratic system not having justice powers being an anomaly. And and there's a strong case to be made there. But far more important for me is that when it comes to talking about citizen experience, the fact that justice isn't devolved actually impacts quite considerably on people's lives So we have things like huge, long waiting lists for court cases. We have an incredibly patchy and dysfunctional legal aid system. So there are whole chunks of the Welsh nation which are deserts in terms of legal aid. My colleagues at the Wales Governance Centre, particularly Dr Rob Jones, has done some wonderful work around the prisoner population and the Negative impact that Wales's political weakness has on actually managing prisoners and managing prison reform. You know, we've got the highest rates of incarceration, we've got the most imbalanced stop and search with regard to ethnicity anywhere in the United Kingdom. And the reason that all of those things are important is that if you are in government and you're trying to develop a policy around offending and around rehabilitation and around prisons and around probation you really need to have control of all of those levers not some because policy spills over into other related areas as we all know when we study public policy and it's an anomaly and a a problem I think that Wales doesn't have the full competence to be able to pursue the Welsh Government's policy objectives.
0: You've been appointed a co-chair of the Independent Commission on the Constitutional Future of Wales, along with your co-chair, Dr Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, and no doubt you'll be considering lots of these things as part of the Commission's work. Just to, to start off with, I mean, there has been a, a strong tradition of establishing constitutional commissions in Wales. You mentioned the Thomas Commission, and, and there have been others too, often leading to reforms to the devolution settlement. Can you Tell us a little bit about this one, this new one, and how it maybe differs from previous commissions.
1: Well, you're absolutely right, Nicola, to say that you know Wales is is commission and committee and inquiry central. We've had so many, and I've served on, on quite a few of them over the past 20 years, but that tells you something about the fluid nature of Welsh devolution and how flawed a settlement, in inverted commas, we had right at the outset. There was no way that the executive model of devolution could could have survived, really. And therefore, commissions have been necessary to actually accelerate the process of of change. But I mean, in terms of the uh, independent commission that Rowan and I are are co-chairing at the moment, it, it is different in that it's an independent commission set up originally by Welsh Government, with a pretty expansive remit, because we've been asked to look at all options for reforming the constitutional settlement in Wales within the United Kingdom. But our second objective that's been given to us, if you like, by Welsh Government is to look at all other options that might improve the life and the delivery of politics to the people of Wales, which, of course, includes potential scenarios out with the United Kingdom too. So without putting too fine a point on it, we, we have a brief of looking at every modification, every amendment, every model... All the way through independence, and I think there's a couple of reasons as to why that's significant. First of all, it's a government in power establishing the commission, which of course is different to Keir Starmer's UK Labour Commission chaired by Gordon Brown. That's the first point. I think the second point is it's a, a unionist party in Welsh Labour. I mean, you can argue about the extent to which. Welsh Labour is conventionally unionist, but technically the UK Labour Party is, is a party that's in support of the maintenance of the union of the United Kingdom, allowing uh, an independent commission to look at independence, um, which I think is significant as well. And then thirdly, the fact that our commissioners, and both Rowan and I had input into the choice of commissioners, range from conservative supporting individuals, to Leanne Wood, the former leader of Plaid Cymru, and obviously an advocate of independence. But alongside them sit some pretty heavyweight figures who understand how things work at Westminster and Whitehall. So Philip Rycroft, who I'm sure your listeners will know, who's a Scot, of course, and has been involved with both Scottish politics and Whitehall politics and Brexit politics for that matter. So he knows only too well how things land in Whitehall. And another commission member is Sir Michael Marmot, who's done a lot of work on health inequalities and is very passionate about connecting constitutional change with delivery of policy to ordinary people. And I like that. You know, I think that's a really important values based approach that we're, we're going to try and follow with the Commission. But I mean, probably most importantly of all is the fact that this also needs to be a Commission that isn't led by elites. It's a conversation, a civic conversation that engages with people who generally wouldn't have conversations on constitutional matters. That's required quite a lot of thinking, as you can imagine, in terms of what we do. But but I'm pleased to say we're nearly ready to launch our engagement strategy which will be very different to anything that's been done before. I mean, you know, there's only so many ways of engaging, obviously, but, but we're going to borrow best practice and strategically merge that into an approach that we hope will really give everybody in Wales, wherever they live, whoever they are, whatever background they're from, an opportunity to tell us what's important to them about politics and, and devolution and policy delivery. So I, I hope it will be very different to the commissions that have gone before us.
0: Yeah, it does feel a different time now. You really have to be more participative and inclusive in, in approach. And without preempting what your strategy is going to say, are you able to say a little bit about how you might reach those groups that aren't already engaged? It's relatively easy to engage with those who are willing and able and, and keen to be engaged already, but wider
1: groups sometimes we refer to harder to reach group. How do you propose to to reach out? Yeah, I mean, somebody said something very effective to us about this notion of harder to reach. It's not that people are harder to reach. It's just your methods don't reach them, which is, you know, turning the thing on its head, which I, I'm fully supportive of. And I've been guilty of, you know, not not appreciating that myself in in projects before. But I think what we're going to try to do is use quantitative and qualitative methods. We're going to try and use some of the expertise of Uh, citizens' panels and juries. We're going to use focus groups, but not in a conventional sense, around some of the qualitative work we do in the first stage of the Commission's engagement. And then we'll drill down with some quantitative work around surveys and opinion polling and so on. But I think probably what makes our approach a little bit different is that we've opened ourselves up to partnerships with groups that have expertise in dealing with, for example, younger people or older people. We have an older person's commissioner and a younger person's commissioner in Wales, and we have probably the biggest youth movement anywhere in Europe. So we've got quite a few ins, if you like, with different groups, which we we have to maximise because clearly the commission can't do everything. But as well as that, we've stepped back from some traditional approaches that every commission does, like a conventional call for evidence. I think we've still got to have a mechanism to get people who are experts uh, to give their verdicts on models, constitutional models. But at the same time, we've stripped away a lot, a lot of the technical jargon in our what we're calling an opportunity to have their say rather than a call for evidence. And we've made it something that relates to people's experiential knowledge of devolution, you know, what has worked for them, which policies do they feel are a credit to the Senedd or to the Welsh government, what would they like to have been done differently. And and that takes us to something that's really fundamental for, for Rowan and I, which is a values-based approach to discussing this question. And And again, I'm not making any great claims that we're the first people to do this. You know, I mean, I'm aware that the Scottish Citizens Assembly talked about values and principles. The Silk Commission had principles for devolution, and lots of other organisations have. So it's, we're not, you know, claiming that we're first, but by establishing some really important values for the analysis of the models that could work for Wales, both within the UK and outside the UK, I think will give us a better way of. Speaking to people and relating to people and making it clear to them that this is about their views, not our judgments on what's successful and what's less successful.
0: Can we talk more about the, the constitutional aspect of the work? I noted on the, the remit, it was about considering and developing options for fundamental reform of the constitutional structures of the United Kingdom. And that United Kingdom focus alongside the other things that you mentioned, but that UK focus seems to stand out a little bit different from the previous constitutional commissions in Wales that were much more about Wales' powers and the Welsh devolution arrangements. Can you change the constitutional future of the UK from Wales?
1: You're right in saying it's different. This is not just about where Wales might be in the future, but also where the UK might be. In some senses, what happens in the component parts of the United Kingdom is going to radically change the United Kingdom, regardless of of what we might wish to happen. So there's a lot of power resting in Scotland, clearly, over a potential second independence referendum. Clearly, if that happens and were there to be a, a vote for independence, then the UK doesn't exist in the same form anyway. Then, of course, we know that there is groundswell of opinion around a change in northern ireland potential reunification and so on which of course would again shatter the united kingdom in its current form now where wales comes in i think is really interesting because you know bear in mind at the moment wales is the only nation led by a government that wants to unequivocally retain the united kingdom and that's that's quite important i think and gives wales a quite unique status in terms of the uk debate so i understand entirely why the welsh government was keen to project Wales's uh, role beyond the national dimension here in Wales to the UK dimension. But you quite rightly said, you know, can the constitutional future of the UK change from Wales or can we influence the constitutional future? I think we can influence it, but whether we can change it remains to be seen. But this is fast moving ground, isn't it? And it would only take one of all of those scenarios that I've outlined to happen for there to be a fundamentally different UK anyway. Bear in mind now, Welsh Labour is in partnership and cooperation, they call it, but it's effectively a partnership with Plaid Cymru. But the original terms of the commission were drawn up before that cooperation was agreed. In a sense, what Welsh Labour would like to happen is that Wales is on the front foot in this debate about constitutional scenarios, that we come up with proposals that are amenable and acceptable to UK Labour in the sense of reform of the Union, that they can then operationalise within a a UK Labour manifesto, because in a sense, Welsh Labour should probably have more influence on the constitutional question than any other part of the United Kingdom Labour Party, given it's in power and has been in power throughout the evolution. So I think that's important. But the other partner in the cooperation agreement, of course, is Plaid Cymru, whose avowed aim is, is independence. In some senses, we are obliged to look at every potential constitutional scenario with the same rigour and forensic analysis, and that's absolutely right that we do that. So so you can see why Plaid Cymru is also relaxed about the remit and the terms of reference of the Commission, because to do our job properly, we have to look at the analysis of the model that exists now. We have to look at additional powers, Devo Max, for example, We have to look at models of federalism, which, of course, are massively dependent on change in England, all the way to um, something approaching independence. And we have to look at all of those equally. So it's a big task, but a really important one, because I don't think that kind of debate would happen anywhere else in the UK, including at UK level, with the same buy-in from each of the four political parties. This is where the, the Gordon Brown Commission has such limitations. It's starting from a position of safeguarding the union at all costs, and it's an internal Labour Party commission, whereas ours includes Conservative, Plaid Cymru, Labour, Lib Dems, and non-party political individuals. So I think it is significant in in that respect.
0: It it does sound from what you're saying, though, that one of the reasons for having a new commission now, so soon after the last revision to devolution in Wales, is Not so much for things happening in Wales, but things happening around Wales. Brexit and its effect on devolution, prospect, potential for Irish unity, talk of a new Scottish independence referendum. Is that a fair assessment, that it's about finding a place for Wales within that broader conversation?
1: Clearly, in the past, Wales has been the recipient of the waves of constitutional change elsewhere. And we certainly haven't been on the front foot in deciding our own position, our own options, or having an evidence base or a bank of information and public views that would help us or help the political parties decide which is the best route to take. So we've been swayed and pulled in different directions by what might be happening in Scotland, for example. Whereas I think now with our own independent commission, we're on the front foot being proactive about a serious structured debate about the constitutional future of Wales. We're advantaged, of course, in that politics around the constitution is not as binary in Wales as it is in Scotland, where clearly the the divide between those who support independence and those who support the union is a very significant binary identity in, in Scottish politics. It's not like that in Wales. You know, as you rightly said, support for independence ranges from about 14% to about 30%, depending on how you ask the question. But, you know, I don't need to tell you that that's not far off where support for independence was in Scotland a few years before the 2014 referendum. So things can change very quickly. The difference in Wales as well when you talk about independence and I don't want to overplay this because let's be let's be really frank about where we are. You know, it's a minority interest in Wales, but but indie, indie curiosity is very well established. But what's most important for me is the fact that support for independence comes from within Welsh Labour voters as well. And bearing in mind how successful Welsh Labour is as a party, and then if you look at the figures that you know that my colleagues at the Wales Governance Centre have on the through the Welsh election. Study In the last elections in 2021 for the Senate, Labour gained over 40% of all indie supporters, independent supporters. So you can see how that's so different to Scottish politics, how it enfeebles Plaid Cymru. Plaid Cymru's strategy going into the 2021 Senate elections was to campaign for an independence referendum in the next term, which was pretty ludicrous, bearing in mind where the where public opinion was at that moment. And its strategy didn't succeed, not because it wasn't a good strategy, although I don't think it was, but because Labour was much better able to capture those supporters applied needed to capture in order to win seats. So we're back to where we started, really, about the power and reach of, of Welsh Labour.
0: I think it's important to acknowledge that the Welsh Government has already had very clear and bold ideas about how the UK should be governed, about how intergovernmental relations should work the role of the devolved governments and these are at odds with the approach of the current UK government. The constitution is ultimately still a reserved matter. What difference can another set of constitutional proposals make, do you think?
1: As I say to people who are sceptical about what our commission can achieve, there are two strong arguments to make for its existence. One, the one I've already made about us taking charge in Wales of our own future constitutional setup, rather than have it done unto us, as as has been the case in the past. And related to that, of course, is during the course of the Commission's work for the next two years, there will be shifts in the politics of Scotland around the Constitution, and there will be shifts in the politics of Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland around the Constitution. And who knows, I mean, there may even be shifts uh, within England itself. So at least we have the apparatus to uh, properly assess those and come up with decisions and judgments and recommendations that suit Wales. But I guess the strongest one, which sounds a bit ludicrous, is what What else can one do? You know, we we have a incredible disconnect at the moment between the traditional and very accurate in terms of legal and constitutional truth that all of Sovereignty in the United Kingdom rests in Westminster. It's parliamentary sovereignty. But the disconnect comes from the fact that clearly that isn't how people um, and politicians and governments elsewhere in the UK see the new sovereignty map. And I think we do have to really address that quite urgently and quite rigorously, because I've always felt that unionists are more likely to at least destabilise the union than nationalists are. And what I mean by that is once the reality of devolution was in play, then the mentality of devolve and forget or a mentality of giving power as if it's a kind of grace and favor approach to sharing democracy was always destined to undermine the union more than anybody anticipated. And I think if those people who feel the union deserves to be saved or they want it to be saved, then I think They have every right to expect a better and more successful strategy from unionists. That's where I give credit to a unionist party like Welsh Labour in at least having the self-confidence, let's say, to delegate this conversation nationally to an independent commission. I'm not sure that would happen anywhere else in, in the UK. And maybe Welsh Labour are making more of a contribution to saving the union as a result than the Conservatives are at Westminster.
0: And we have seen at Westminster something of a reassertion of Westminster parliamentary sovereignty, perhaps. Can you envisage fundamental reform of the kind that is in your remit without bringing an end to or fundamentally changing that doctrine of the sovereignty of the Westminster Parliament?
1: Well, a lot will depend on what, what options we feel have legs in terms of the Welsh situation. But, but of course, there will almost invariably have to be some recasting of the notion of parliamentary sovereignty as entirely enshrined within Westminster, because I think that notion, whilst technically correct, is politically inaccurate and has been for quite some time. Devolution and the authority that the devolved, governments, the national governments of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland have, comes from people's choices at the ballot box and from the popular support that those institutions have. So it's pretty anachronistic, let's say, to make the case for a jealous protection of parliamentary sovereignty when that just doesn't sit within the new multi-level governance model that we see within the United Kingdom. But I think if people want to save the union, then it It fundamentally has to be recast and reformulated on a much more voluntary and shared basis. And that's effectively what Wales has been saying for some time.
0: Final question, Laura. It may be that the union is not maintained in its current form, perhaps through independence for Scotland or through Irish unity. What impact do you think um, either of those would have for Wales?
1: I think either is a game changer because... I think our research shows that amongst younger people in particular, the notion of greater power uh, all the way to independence has much greater appeal and support. Imagining a United Kingdom without Scotland or without uh, Northern Ireland or without Scotland and Northern Ireland, of course, which is the absolute game changing situation, I think is, is very difficult. Um, And I can't imagine that that would be anything less than a game changer in terms of the politics of, of Wales, because the notion of a kind of England and Wales, bearing in mind the size of England and the size of Wales, is a pretty unattractive prospect for anyone other than those people who feel that Wales maybe doesn't have all of the attributes of a nation. And I actually think there are very few of those people now and profile-wise, even fewer amongst younger generations. So I can't imagine that developments in Scotland and Northern Ireland, were they to happen in the next few years, would have anything other than a revolutionary impact in Wales as well. But it's back to my point about the work of the Commission, really. Regardless of what happens with independence in Scotland or reunification in, in Ireland, it's incumbent on us to have a vision and a A really clear suggested structure of what would suit Wales best, regardless of what happens elsewhere. But I'm not naive enough to suggest that that would survive if there were significant constitutional change in any of the other nations of the UK.
0: Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. A fascinating discussion and a real pleasure uh, to speak about all of these issues with you. Good luck with the Commission. We'll observe developments with interest in the coming months and years. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to today's episode. You've been listening to Constitutionally Sound from the Centre on Constitutional Change with me Nicola McEwen, and Professor Laura McAllister of Cardiff University's Wales Governance Centre and co-chair of the Independent Commission on the Constitutional Future of Wales. Speak to you next time. Thank you.